been, it's been a joy to be here, all except for the, the gas that somebody stole. Uh, and I just look at that maybe as a Bible Baptist church member wanting me to stay. To, to, I mean, after all, at dinner, Lee, I'm going to be honest with you, your breath did smell a little bit like gasoline, okay? So uh, I don't know what that was. But uh, I, I, lo- I love this church. Uh, you know, I go to churches every week of my life. I travel every week of my life for a day or two. And uh, th- th- this church is a unique church. It's a unique spirit of vibrancy for the Lord. And, and a, a great example of that was that last song. What, what, a, what a, it's one thing to sing a song. It's another thing to sing a song. You know, when, when people are singing the song, the testifying, it was great, great, all of it. It's, it's wonderful. And got a chance to meet with some of the uh, leaders, uh, leadership in the church uh, for a little meal. That was a blessing as well. So just thanks for doing what you're doing, being used of the Lord. Uh, are we live streaming tonight? Where's the live stream camera? Thank you for watching at home, all of you that were afraid of, like, whatever this was tonight. We're glad you're tuning in as well. Thank you for, uh, for, for tuning in. Matthew 21, uh, in your Bible tonight, this is uh, a very simple story that Jesus told, and so I want to tell it to you and give you a really, really simple thought tonight. Matthew chapter 21, in your Bible, this is the last week of Jesus' life. So in Matthew chapter 21, here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows that all those people two days before that were shouting and saying, Hosanna, son of David, and they were throwing down their coats, and they were throwing down palm branches and saying, this is the Messiah, he's finally here. What Jesus knows is those people were fickle. He knows that by the end of the week, uh, some of those same people that cried, Hosanna, son of David, will be crying, crucify him. Crucify him. And such is the nature of the fickleness of people. Uh, Jesus also knows that the religious leaders of the day are really, really mad at him. Uh, Jesus, just the day before, has come into the temple And instead of just behaving himself like every other person in the temple, Jesus came in and actually took the tables in the temple with all of the coins on it, and he turned them over. Can you imagine those greedy uh, money changers as they ran around trying to scoop up all the coins that fell all over the stone uh, pavement of that temple mount? It must have been mayhem. And then the Bible says Jesus made a whip. He made a whip. Jesus And he began to drive people out, everybody that was buying and selling. That's a lot of people. He drove every one of them out of the temple. And the religious leaders were just incensed. Why? Because they were the ones that were making the most money. Uh, They had established this whole system of graft in the temple whereby they they were getting a cut on every sale that took place in the temple. So when Jesus was showing them, hey, you're making my father's house a house of merchandise. This ought to be a house of prayer. You've taken a place that's dedicated to the worship of God, and you've made it all about your own profit. And they didn't like that at all. You say, well, if they didn't like it, then why didn't they just arrest Jesus on the spot? I mean, they've got all the guards. 
They have all the authority. They can do what they want to do, and that's true. But here's why they didn't do it. Because they, they wanted to, they certainly wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they also wanted to retain popularity with the people. So they didn't know how to do both. But the people, if we arrest him, we're going to be unpopular with the people. So they just kind of bided their time. In the meantime, Jesus is having conversations with groups like the Sadducees and groups like the Pharisees and other groups of people that are coming. All of them are trying to trip Jesus up in his words. They're all trying to get him to say something self-incriminating, whether it be about taxes, whether it be about Rome, whether it be about the resurrection. They're all just trying to get Jesus uh, tongue-tied in his answers. But that's not working out too well for them because Jesus is just kind of making all of them look bad. And one of the parables that Jesus tells on that day, right in the middle of that week, I mean, by Thursday, he'll be celebrating the Last Supper. So right in the middle of the week, Jesus is dealing with all of this controversy, and he asks a question of some of the, uh, some of the religious leaders that are with him. And I want you to see that question. Verse number 28, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse number 28. And I want you to see the question that Jesus asks. Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 28. Watch this. But what think ye? Stop for a moment. What think ye? You know, Jesus would often teach by asking questions. See, the, the teaching of Jesus was much different than the teaching we do nowadays. Nowadays, teaching is primarily what, what's happening right now. One person is teaching a lesson and everyone else is listening. But back in Bible days, the method of Jesus was questions and answers. He was constantly asking questions, getting answers, finding out what their level of understanding was, going to the next question. So here, Jesus is giving a short story, and in the short story, he says, now listen, I'm going to tell you a story. I want you to tell me what you think about it. So I'll say the same thing to you tonight. I'm going to tell you a story, and the story of Jesus, and I want to ask you tonight what you think about it. I want to see if you get the right answer. Now, here's my prediction. My prediction is, even if you've never read this passage, even if this is the first time you've ever heard this passage, my prediction is this, that when I tell you this really simple story, every single person in this room will get the right answer. That's my prediction. My prediction is this story will be so obvious that everyone's going to get a 100 on this test. Okay, so here it is, verse number 28. But what think ye? Here's the story. A certain man had two sons. That was very common for Jesus' stories, these parables. He would talk about fathers and sons. And if anyone understood the relationship between a father and a son, it was Jesus, the Son of God. I think about the great parable in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son, how he had an elder brother and the father and two sons. So here's another father and two sons. Watch this father. A father had two sons, and he came to the first and uh, said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And so uh, the father has every prerogative to go to a son and say, Son, I've got a job for you to do. I own some land. I own a vineyard. Uh, I have a harvest field, and uh, you need to go out and work in my field. By the way, our father tells us, his children, the same thing. He's our father. Uh, there's a field that we're supposed to work, and uh, it's his field, not our field. And he tells us, go out and work in my field 
today. That's a reasonable request from a father to a son. That's a reasonable request of a father to a daughter. Very reasonable request. So watch the response. I call this response number one, verse number 29. He answered and said, I will not. Wow. So a dad comes to a son and says, son, go work today in my vineyard. That's not a hard That's not a hard commandment to understand. That's pretty easy to understand. Go work today in my vineyard. And the son looks at his own dad in the face and says, I will not. Now, let's do a little test tonight, okay? And uh, we'll we'll give you one day to complete the test. And then we'll, we'll find out tomorrow. I won't be here, but pastor, tomorrow night, find out how this test works, okay? So every teenager in the room, okay? The next time your mom or your dad tells you to do something, I want you to look, right, look him in the face and say, I will not, okay? And just tell me how that works for you, okay? Just tell me how that works out. If you're able to walk to church, tell us, okay, tomorrow how that worked out for you. Not a good thing to say. Not a good, not a good response. But, but, but watch what happens. Verse number 29, he answered and said, I will not, but, so here's the contrast, but afterward he repented. The word repent simply means to change one's mind. So what did he do? He thought about it. Watch this. He thought about it. And after he thought about it, he thought, no, that was the wrong thing to say. So watch what he did. Verse number 29, he repented and went. Because true repentance is not a change of mind only. It starts with a change of mind, but true repentance follows, follows up with action. So he repented and went. So he did what his father told him to do. Now, not the best way, not initially, but eventually he did. Now, look at verse number 30. And he came to the second. Remember, the father had two sons. So he came to the second son. And he said likewise, which means he said the exact same thing to the second son that he had said to the first son. And what was the exact same thing? Son, go work today in my vineyard. He said the exact same thing. He said likewise. And watch the response of the second son. Well, the Bible says, and he answered and said, I go, sir. Great answer. Every parent uh, loves that answer. I go, sir. When my uh, children were small, we, we would teach them how to respond to mom and dad. We teach our, our kids. When, when dad tells you to do something, your answer is not just yes. It's yes, sir. And we would just train our kids. It's yes, sir. If an adult tells you to do something, then you say yes, sir. If an adult corrects you, you say yes, sir. If it's a woman, say yes, ma'am. And we'd practice that. We just taught our kids that from an early age. That's just a respect. And, but do you know that sometimes we can use words of respect and not be respectful? Sometimes we can use words of agreement and compliance and not be obedient. Because that's exactly what happens here. This second son was more than respectful to dad's face in the moment. But watch what he eventually does in verse number 30. He answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Okay, got it? Two sons. First son, nope, but he does. Second son, yep, but he doesn't. Okay, got it? That's the story. Okay, now watch what Jesus says. Because I'm going to ask you the same question. Verse 31. Whether of them twain, 
Which of these two, we'd say today? Whether of them twain did the will of his father. Stop. Don't, don't look. Don't, don't go any further. Okay? I don't want you to see their answer. Get your eyes on your own piece of paper. Don't cheat. Okay? Okay, so which one? So I'm gonna, I, I, okay, just to make this fair, okay, number one was the guy that said no, but then he did. The second one was the one that said yes, but then he didn't. Okay, so one, no, but did. Two, yes, but didn't. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to ask you the question. I'm going to say one, two, three, and then I want you to shout out which one did the will of his father. Okay, one or two. Okay, so which one did the will of his father? One, two, three. What an intelligent church. <laughs> Pastor, the, the, the years of labor in the word, all of the theological study, all of the prayer, it's paid off. I mean, I think you could probably cancel church for the entire summer. This church is so smart. It's not, it's not a hard answer, is it? Some would call that axiomatic. It's, it's self-evident. Like, no one's going to get that wrong. There's not one person who came to church tonight when I asked that question that got the question wrong. Look, look at what Jesus goes on to say. So whether of them twain did the will of his father, they said unto him the first. Even they got it right. Unsafe, so you're saying, you're feeling good about yourself right now. Don't feel too good, okay? Because these, uh, uh, these unsaved people got it right too. The first. Jesus saith unto them, here's the application. Verily I say unto you that publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, now why would he say that? Because these sinners, these publicans and harlots, whom everyone would say, look at those low-down, good-for-nothing, sorry sinners, look at them, they're so obviously sinners, what they've said by their lifestyles, no to God. But you know what happened afterward, when they heard the message of Jesus, they said yes to God. So they're like the first son. But watch this. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believe not. So you're the ones that your whole life you've been saying, oh, we love God. Your whole life you've been saying, we say yes to God. We've memorized the Bible. We wear fancy clothes. We pray in public places. Uh, we never miss the Sabbath. Uh, we, we've said yes to God. Watch this. But ye believed him not. So you're the yes-sayers, but you're not doing the will of God. They're the no-sayers, but they have done the will of God, because they followed me. Publicans and harlots believed him, and ye, when you had seen him, when you saw me, the Messiah, you repented not afterward that ye might believe on him. Let me talk to you for just a, a couple seconds tonight about uh, this topic. Ready? Three responses. Three responses. You say, okay, uh, Pastor Skelly, I saw two. I know the man had two sons, but you just said three. Yes, I did. Okay, because we're going to talk about the first response. Then we're going to talk about the second response. Now watch this. Then we're going to talk about your response. Because this parable was included so that somebody else would respond. Jesus told the story so that there would be a third response. 
And tonight, every single one of us will have responded. Now you say, no, no, I'm not going to respond. No, that's a response. That is a response. Every single one of us tonight will have responded. Because there are things that God has told you to do. And you know what they are. Some of them are things that we all know. Like we ought to be in the word. We ought to be people of prayer. We ought to be sharing our faith. But no doubt there are specific things in your life right now. And I'm asking that God would help to show you them in this service. There are specific things in your life right now that you know God has told you to do. Now, my question tonight is what you're going to do with it. Because I think sometimes what we do is we, to kind of feel better about ourselves, sometimes what we do is we say yes. Like we'll hear a church service like this and we'll say, oh, yeah, I agree. And we'll say, yeah, we'll even come to the altar and say yes. Yes, Lord. Oh, that's something I need to change in my life. And we get up, get to our car, and never do anything about it. We're the second son. And I'm asking tonight that just as all of us unanimously said, one. I'm hoping tonight we'll walk out of the room tonight unanimously with our actions and say, one. Because that's what God expects of us. So let's look at the three responses. First of all, notice, if you would, verse number uh, 28 again. So a certain man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go. We'll go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. Okay, so what do we learn about the first son? Let me give you these words. First of all, I think we learn about the word relationship. The word relationship. So how did the father approach the first son? In what capacity did the father approach the first son? Okay, he approached him in the capacity of relationship. He didn't go and say, servant. He didn't go and say, uh, stranger. He, He came and said, son. You know, when God comes to us as his children, he comes to us in the capacity of relationship. When God wants us to do something for him, when God has expectations for us from his word, those expectations are born out of a relationship. And it's important that we see that. Otherwise, we just become Christian automatons that feel like, oh, we're just kind of widgets and we're supposed to do what the Bible says and we're just, no, no, that's not, the point is, is that as children of God, we get to serve God. As children of God, we are the children of God. We ought to want to serve God. So when the father comes to the son and says, son, I think there are two implicit words. Number one, authority. The father has the prerogative to ask me to do whatever he wants to do. I wonder, have you given the Father authority in your life? Have you said to the Father, Father, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to be, hey, whatever you want me to give up, God, whatever you want me to relinquish, God, whatever you want me to say, God, you are in charge, I am submissive to you. Hey, yes, sir. Do you have that spirit of, I delight always to do thy will, O God? That was the testimony of God the Son. That ought to be your testimony, not my will, but thine be done. That's the testimony of a son that understands authority. But listen, it's not just authority, it's affection. It's not just that God is this big God upstairs and he thunders out his commands. We cower and say, okay, God, don't zap me. That's not Christianity either. Yes, he has authority, but it's a loving authority. 
Yes, it's authority, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and he's our Abba Father, our Abba Father. And uh, we get to serve him, and he loves us, and he's there for us, and there ought to be affection to say, I love my God, and I want to serve my God. So when God comes to us as his sons, as his children, he's coming to us by virtue of relationship. Okay, but watch this, number two. Not only is he coming to us by virtue of relationship, but I think, number two, he's coming to us by virtue of responsibility. Because he says, son, watch this, son, go work today in my vineyard. Son, go work. You know that you are saved? You're you're not going to like this statement, but it's true. You are saved to work. You are saved to work. You know, God put Adam in the garden to do what? To work. And there's nothing bad about work. Matter of fact, there's something very fulfilling about work. God has a work for us to do. I think sometimes, as independent Baptists, we're so careful to point out that we're not saved by works. No, we're not saved by works. We're not, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. According to his mercy, he saved us. For by grace he is saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, not of works. Lest any man should boast. We never quote verse 10. For we are his... Workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. God has works for us to do. Things that you can do that I can't do. He's gifted you and equipped you in ways that he's not gifted and equipped me. And I've got to discover what those works are and to do the works. That's why Jesus said in John 9, I must work the works of him that sent me. While it's day, the night cometh when no man can work. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Well, that's what God's called us to be. Uh, looking unto Jesus, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we might be zealous unto good works. And so when God said to this, when the Father said to the Son, Son, he came to him by virtue of relationship. But when the Father came to the Son, he came to him by virtue of responsibility. And there's a couple statements I want to make about responsibility. Here it is, ready? Obedience is not a matter of, uh, uh, or rather, obedience is a matter of action, not intention. I think sometimes the way we hide from God is we hide from God with words of intention. Like, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Like, you ought to. Yep, you're right. I ought to. You ought to be in your Bible. Yes, I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna be in my Bible. I'm busy. I've got some stuff going on right now. But I'm gonna tell you what. I am... We ought to be people of prayer. Yes, we ought to be people of prayer. I'm going to tell you, there's coming a day when I am really going to have a vibrant prayer life, get along with God every day, prioritize that in my schedule. Uh, Not now, but I'm going to. And uh, we ought to lead people to Christ. You know, I I really have always wanted to do that. Now, I do want to be a better soul winner, and I'm going to be that person. I'm going to start passing out gospel tracts. I'm going to start witnessing to people on a regular basis. I'm not there yet, but I'm going to. Hey, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Obedience is not a matter of intention. It's a matter of action. 
I'll say this about responsibility. Not only is obedience a matter of action, not attention, obedience is a matter of now, not later. It's a matter of now, not later. Hey, go work today in my vineyard. Have you ever noticed how often God uses words like today or now? Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Uh, but behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Man, God is a today God. And if you can't do it today, if it's not something you can get right with about today, then you're never going to do it. You're going to kick that can down the road and kick that can down the road and kick that can down the road until there's no more road. And well, I've dealt with people in my office that made great decisions when they were teenagers, and here they are in their mid-40s, and they still haven't followed through. Why? Because obedience is a matter of now, not later. It's a matter of action, not intention. Obedience is a matter of stewardship, not ownership. You know, you know why we don't obey sometimes? Because we think, we, we think that we have the prerogative to disobey. Well, if I don't want to give, I don't have to give. It's my money. If I don't want to invest time, I don't have to invest time. It's my time. It's my life. But what did the father say? The father said, son, relationship, go work today in, in, in my vineyard. It's my vineyard. Now, our job is to do thy will, O God. He said, no, it's my life. No, it's not your life. When you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you agree with God that your life is not your own. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have a God? You're not your own. You're not what Paul said incredulously. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your spirit. They belong to God. The Bible says, uh, for as much as you know, you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish, without spot? No, listen, we've been bought with a precious, uh, a precious price, the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't have the prerogative to say, oh God, mine, mine, mine. It's not yours. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said, if you want to think of me, think of me as a steward of the mysteries of Christ. Think of me as a servant of God, and it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Hey, you don't own your time. You don't own your life. You don't own your treasure. God's given you what you have as a steward for him. What are you going to do? Bury it? What are you going to do? Hide it under a napkin? What are you going to do? Just be afraid? Now, God gave you your life to invest back for him. It's his vineyard. Uh, there's fields that are white under harvest. Lift up your eyes. Come on. Time's a-wasting. Jesus is coming. What are we doing? responsibility. So when the father comes to the first son, boy, there's a lot going on. It's a short, pithy command, but boy, he comes by way of relationship, son. He comes by way of responsibility. Go work today in my vineyard. But then watch this thirdly. Uh, I see not only relationship and responsibility, but then I see on the part of the boy, rebellion. Rebellion. Obedience is a matter of the will, not a matter of ability. This man didn't say, I cannot. This man didn't say, you know, it's too hard, or, or I know not. It wasn't a matter of the head. He knew what to do. It wasn't a matter of the hands. 
He was young and strong. He could do what dad told him to do. And by the way, whatever God tells you to do, where God guides, he provides. Where God leads, he feeds. And where God calls, he equips, always. God's never going to ask you to do something that you, by his grace, cannot do. Trust him. Live by faith. And so what happened was, this man rebelled. And it wasn't a matter of his head. He understood it. It wasn't a matter of his hands. He could do it. It was a matter of his heart. I will not. Your heart, that, that's who you really are. Your, your will, your volition. No, I won't do it. I won't do it. That's why David was so intent upon, Lord, I want my heart to be right. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. And I say, oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Uh, with my whole heart I have sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hidden mine heart that I might not sit against thee. It's all about heart, heart. Where's your heart? Is your heart right with God? Because when this father came to the son, this son exercised rebellion. I will not. He said, well, I'd never say that to God. I would never say that. If God, if the father told me to do something, I would tell him, yes, that's even worse. It's even worse when we lie to him. We have no intention of changing. We have no intention of holiness. We have no intention of getting right, but we say the right thing in the moment. At least he had the guts to say he wasn't going to do it. I will not. There was relationship that he was flouting. There was responsibility that he was avoiding. There was rebellion that he was exhibiting. But then watch lastly about this first son. There was repentance. And I love that. that. That's the saving grace to the story. Is that I will not, but afterward. That's my favorite word in the whole parable. My favorite word in the whole parable is the word afterward. You know why? Because afterward, afterward is often how we hear. Afterward is often how we hear. Have you ever done something really stupid in your life? Don't look at your marriage partner and say, yeah, okay, no, no, no. Have you ever done anything really stupid? Yeah, we all have. But then have you come to a place and said, you know what, that was, that was really bad. And afterward, your conscience got to you. You said, you know what, no, I'm, I'm going to do that. That's what this kid did. That's what this young man did. After, and afterward often is how we hear. And can I just say this? If that's you, that tells me that you have an operable conscience. That tells me that you have a healthy conscience because the Holy Spirit is beating you up about it. You can't sleep. Man, I said that thing I shouldn't have said. Now, harbored that bitterness I shouldn't have harbored. Man, I, didn't, I did that thing I shouldn't have done. Now, God, get this thing right. Afterward is often how we hear. But watch this. Afterward is what gives us hope. Hey, aren't you glad that we serve an afterward God? Because if I were God and I said, Steve, go work today in my vineyard, and you said no, remember that storm about an hour ago? I'd put that storm right on you. Hailstones, lightning, thunder, flood. But you're telling me no? Who, who do we think we are? And yet God in his grace allows us space. God in his grace allows us space. And the fact is, afterward ought to give us hope. You say, oh, wow. Well, that's God. 
and God gives grace a space of grace, then we can wait on all his commands. I mean, if we serve an afterward God, why not just wait then? Well, the Bible says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's dumb. And that brings me to my third point, which is this. Afterward is always harder. No, yeah, afterward is how we hear sometimes. And afterward gives us hope that God doesn't just zap us in the moment, that there is space for grace. That's wonderful. But wait a minute. Uh, by doing it afterward, you're making it harder on yourself. Why? Well, think about this guy. Nope, I'm not going to do it. Goes back to bed. Nope, my work goes out and plays. But he thinks about it. He's convicted by it. He repents of it. And he goes out and works. Have you ever gone to work late and try to get an eight-hour job done in six hours? It's a lot harder. I don't know how long he waited, but I'm going to tell you something. It was harder. The way of transgressors is what? Hard. And you know what? You can wait to serve God, and God will take you late. You can wait to punch in on God's time clock, and God will take you late. But I'm going to tell you something. It'll be harder. It'll be harder. Yes, you can obey, and God will take you. Open arms, but it's harder. The best time to serve God is today. The best time. Just Now, will he take you tomorrow? Yes, if it comes. But the best time to serve God is right now. That's response number one. Quickly, look at response number two. Verse number 29, really quickly, afterward he came to the second, said likewise, said the exact same thing. And the second son said, I go, sir. But he went not. So what was the second son's response? This will take, this will take three minutes, ready? Three points, three minutes. Number one, his response was respectful. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, I've grown up in Christian school America. I've heard a lot of yes, sirs. I've grown up in Christian school America. I've seen a lot of compliant kids. I'm going to tell you something. One of the best places for rebellion to hide is behind compliance. One of the best places for compliance to hide uh, is uh, rebellion to hide is behind compliance. People that know how to speak the language, people who know how to wear the clothes, people who know how to act when they're on the stage in front of people, but aren't a whit different on the inside. That was this kid. Respectful when he had to be. Number two, he was right. No, he was right. At, at first, his response was right. The improper response would have been no. The proper response was yes. So it was, it was the right words, but the wrong heart. Right words, wrong heart. Man, that's Christian school America. Right words, wrong heart. We, we know how to say the right thing. Jesus said about, uh, Jeremiah said about the prophets of his day, man, they, they draw near to me with their lips. Man, they pray these big flowery prayers. They call me all the right names. They quote all the right Bible verses, but they're dealing with sin in their lives. Rebellion is hiding behind those respectful words. Respectful, right, but rebellious. I wrote in my notes, re respectful rebellion might be the worst kind of, of rebellion of all. It feigns agreement and honor, but denies authority. What did Paul tell Titus about that? He said, they, they those Cretans, they, they profess 
that they know God. They profess that the button works, they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Well, those are strong words. They profess that they know God, but in works, they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Man, their words sound so good, but when it comes down to doing something about it, you never see them. That's the second son, which leads me to my last point. We saw the first son, relationship, responsibility, rebellion, repentance. We saw the second son, whole, respectful. Yes, sir, right. That's, I know the words to say, but hiding rebellion on the inside. In the Christian Witness Protection Program, which leads me to my third response, which is yours. Which is yours, which is mine. So what was their response, the people hearing the parable, the third response, what was their response? Ready for this? They got the right answer, but they got the wrong application. Can I just say this? We live in a Christianity that gets the right answers because we teach them what the right answers are. Who's Jesus? The Son of God. What's the Bible? The Word of God. Why don't you go to church every Sunday? And Sunday night and Wednesday night? No, we, we teach people what to say. We, we teach, we, they, they, know, they know the drill. They know the words. They know the prayers. And these people, they got the answer right. Oh, yeah, no, Jesus, good story. Yeah, that first guy. He was the one that really did the will of the Father. They got the answer right, but they got the application wrong. How do I know that? Well, I'll tell you that in a moment. How did they get the answer right? Well, I want you to think about three stories in the Bible. Think, first of all, about the story with the Good Samaritan. We told it yesterday. So here's this guy. He's walking down the road, falls among thieves. The priest comes by, ignores him. The Levite comes by, ignores him. The Samaritan comes by, goes to where he is, binds up his wounds, takes him to the inn, saves his life, gives him money. If he needs anything more, let me know, I'll pay. And then Jesus says to the lawyer, the bigoted Jewish lawyer who hates Samaritans, and says to him, so let me ask you a question. Who is neighbor in the story? Who is neighbor? Who was it? And then the, the lawyer says, well, I, I, suppose, I suppose the one that showed him mercy. Couldn't even say Samaritan. Couldn't even, couldn't even say out loud Samaritan. I, I guess the one that showed him mercy. Yeah, okay, then you go do that. And the implication is, no, he didn't. See, he got the answer right, but he got the application wrong. So, and David, I want to tell you this story I, I just... The situation I just came across. What, what, what is it, Nathan? Well, it's apparently this, 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 this guy was traveling, and he came to a town. And in town, there was this one guy that had all these sheep. He was really, really rich and had a lot of sheep, kind of like a sheep farm almost. And the, the neighbor across the street only had one sheep. It was really, really poor. And this, this poor guy that had one sheep, he treated that sheep almost like it was a pet. And here's what happened. David, this, this traveler came to town, and the rich man... 
Instead of killing a sheep from his farm, went across the street and stole the sheep, stole the sheep from that poor man, stole that sheep, and offered that sheep to that traveler. I mean, I don't know what to do about that. And David said, I do. Kill him. Kill him. Do you mean to tell me he stole that sheep? You ought to make him pay back and kill him. David saw it clearly. David got the answer right. But boy, he got the application wrong. David, I'm talking about you. You're that man. So Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus over one day. And when he invited him over, he treated him kind of like a second-rate guest. He didn't do any of the normal things. He didn't give him a kiss of greeting. He didn't anoint his head with oil. He didn't make sure that Jesus had his feet washed. Every, every good host would do that, but Simon the Pharisee did none of those. He's too big for that stuff. I'm not going to serve him. They're having a feast, and as they're having a feast, a, a woman comes in the room, and, and she kind of stands against the wall, and she, everyone in town knows who this woman is. She's a woman of ill repute. She's a sinner. She's a, she's a lowlife. She didn't belong there. And she stands there, and as she stands and realizes how merciful Jesus is, she begins to cry. And her tears fall on the dirty feet of Jesus. And Jesus is at the table. His feet are behind. And she cries, and she's almost embarrassed. She kneels down at the feet of Jesus, and she takes her hair, and she begins to wash his feet with her hair, and her very tears washing the feet of Jesus. Embarrassed that she's gotten her own tears on the feet of Jesus. And then she, she realizes how much he loves her and, and that she's been forgiven. This is right after Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. And she came and she felt the mercy and grace of Jesus. And she began to kiss his feet. And here's Simon over here thinking, ha, ha, ha. Now I know Jesus really is not a prophet. Because if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of dirty, low-down, good-for-nothing woman she is. Jesus said, Simon, I got a question for you. Simon said, oh, what's that? He's good at questions. He's good at answers. Here's my question. You got a guy that owes a lot, a lot of money, and he can't pay it. And the guy that he owes money to says to him, all right, you know what? I forgive you your debt. And then here's this other guy. He owes just a little bit of money. Not a lot. And the guy says, you know what? That little bit of money you owe me, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay. Simon, let me ask you a question. Which one of these two that were forgiven, which one is going to love that creditor more? You know what Simon said? Well, I, I guess the guy that I guess the guy that was forgiven much. And Jesus said, Yep. Yep. When I came in, you did nothing for me. But when she came in, she's not stopped doing everything for me. You know why? You get the right answer, but you don't you get it. Watch this. Hey Simon, you get it, but you don't get it. Hey David, you got it, but you didn't get it. Hey, lawyer, you got it, but you didn't get it. Here in the story, they got it, but they didn't get it. 
And look at the last verse I'll show you. All the way at the end of the chapter. This is so sad. Matthew chapter 21. And look at verse number 45. This is the end of the chapter. Jesus tells four stories. We just told you one tonight. And watch what happens at the end of those four stories. And when the chief priests, verse number 45, and when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. So these guys, they, they finally got done with these stories, and they're like, hey, wait a minute. Wait one cut, big a minute. You're, you're talking about us, aren't you? Now, wait a minute. When you figure out that the word of God is directed to your life, what should be your response? Repent. Get right. You know what repentance is? It's con- you know what confession is? It's saying, God, I agree with you that my sin is as bad as you say it is. And I confess it. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's what happens. Verse number 46. But when they sought to lay hands on him. What was their response? Their response wasn't to get on their knees and repent. Their response was to get rid of Jesus. You know what our response is oftentimes when we're caught? Our response is, well, I'm done with that church. You know, I I never really believed that stuff anyway. You won't find me reading my Bible anymore. The last time I'm going to talk to that pastor. See, God comes to every one of us tonight and says, Son, that means he loves you. Go work today in my vineyard. That means you have purpose in life. There's something for you to do for his kingdom. And you have an opportunity to say yes and go, or no and go, or yes and don't go, or no and don't go. And the best answer is, oh, Lord, yes. I say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. I say, yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. When your spirit speaks to me with my whole heart, I'll agree. And my answer will be yes, Lord, yes. Let's bow our heads.